Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. What we're doing this morning is we are moving away from the Beatitudes, and now we're looking at how the Beatitudes get walked out in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're now in the season of Lent, as Ash Wednesday was this past Wednesday, and uh, we are going to take a look in the Sermon on the Mount at salt and light. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together, and then please be seated. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father, who is in heaven... Holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in Charlottesville as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You may be seated. So we're exiting the Beatitudes. But what's interesting to note, and we've mentioned this a few times in looking at the Beatitudes, that some theologians and thinkers believe that Jesus was answering the question of what is the good life? What is the good life? Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato, and other philosophers had toyed with that idea. And so many believe, and I've come to believe, that Specifically, the Beatitudes are the good life. And so what I want to do before we take a look at salt and light is I would like for us to just be reminded again of what the Beatitudes are. There's nine of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those that are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers and the persecuted. And what we've talked about for the past several weeks is how these beatitudes are not something that you get up every day and go, this is what I want to do as a Jesus follower. Obviously, none of us got up this morning and said, I hope that something so uh, catastrophic that happens in my life to where I'm grieving and I'm mourning, none of us do that. And what we've learned over the past several weeks is that that these beatitudes are only blessed if the kingdom of God has truly come in Jesus, and it has. And so the question becomes, as we move into the Sermon on the Mount, is what is the good life and how do you live it? And so what Jesus begins to teach on on this hillside with this ragtag multitude of people He begins to talk about something that they would be very, very familiar with, and that's salt and light. So let me read the text, and we're going to talk about the call of Jesus for those of us who are Jesus followers. Here's what the text says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are salt You are the salt of the earth, but, the salt, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it become salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. 
Jesus goes on to say, and again, this is immediately after the Beatitudes, he says, you are the light of the world. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are light. <laughs> a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, before we jump in to what we're going to look at this morning, I want to be crystal clear. Jesus says that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, Jesus knows the crowd he's speaking to. And the crowd that he's speaking to are not the religious elite. And if you've ever read the Gospels, you know his disciples are not the sharpest tools in the shed. Let me put it another way. If you're going to start a new kingdom and you're going to start a new movement, you would not pick the crowd that is on the hillside and you definitely would have not picked his disciples. None of these folks are great choices unless the kingdom has truly come, and it has. And so Jesus stands on the hillside and says, you are salt, you are light, and then you're going to live such drastically different lives from culture, and you're going to do such amazing good deeds that people are going to look at you, and don't get offended by this, but they're going to look at you and go, I don't really think you're that sharp. So there must be God. That's literally what the text says. The text says that people are going to look at you and they're going to look at your good deeds and they're not going to look at you and go, you're so amazing. They're going to go, there must be a God. That God that you serve must be real because what you're doing is amazing. And it literally says, and they will glorify God. They're going to look at you and go, I don't really think so. So there must be a God. And they're going to move their focus there. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take a look at what Jesus teaches on this hillside in this sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus looks at this eclectic group of people and he says, you are salt and light. We don't really know what that means, but everyone there did. You see, salt and light are two things you cannot live without in Jesus' day. You see, they're both extremely expensive and they're essential to life. And Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. By the way, when salt lost its saltiness, they would use it for the construction of roads. Useless. But what we understand is, is that salt was used to cleanse, preserve, and to flavor. And it may seem mind-boggling to us but in Jesus' day, salt was a form of currency. It was so valuable. If you had salt, you are wealthy. And it was currency just like gold. Isn't that mind-boggling to us? I was in Costco the other day, and there was salt by like the 50-pound bag or whatever. And you're looking, in Jesus' day, if you have salt, you are wealthy. If you trade in salt, you're wealthy. 
And so Jesus says, you're salt of the earth. And everyone knows life is dependent on salt. And then he turns to the crowd and says, you are the light of the world. And now they all sit up. Because in Jesus' world, light is extremely expensive. But it's necessary for life. And Jesus says in the gospel, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it on a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Letting your light shine. Light in a house and a town on a hill. I have a deep, deep personal question I need to ask you about your family structure. And here it is, deep question. Who in your family is the one that marches around the house and yells, who didn't turn off the lights? Who's the person in that family? Confess it before God and man, raise your hand. Who's that person? I just saw a woman literally grab her husband's arm and force it up into the air. That's the guy. In my house, here's the thing, Fran is all about lighting. She just loves lighting and we'll go into the house and um, she turns on every light. And I go right behind her. Ching, ching, boom, boom. And what's the phrase that follows that? I don't own the electric company. You were raised like me. My dad would march through the house and say, I don't own the electric company. Turn. I followed suit. I was a disciple of my dad. But the idea here is, is that in my house, Fran loves light. So we have a blue tick coon hound, and she's home alone all day. And we rescued this dog because my daughter wanted a dog. So we rescued her. And she's still with us because our daughter said, I'm going to rescue the dog, go to college. I'm right here at UVA. And then when I get a job, I'll take the dog with me. Thing of it is, she works in Manhattan, New York City. And you cannot take a hound dog into New York City. So guess who now permanently has banks? Our dog. We do. Now, my wife loves light, and so when I leave the house, I turn off all the lights. Everything gets shut off. When Fran leaves, she leaves the lights on for the dog. <laughs> Not only that, she plays classical music for a coon hound. She literally does. So when I come home, there's lights on, there's classical music playing, and the blue tick coon hound is like jello laying in her bed. <laughs> but Fran loves the light. The idea, though, is... Jesus looks at the people on this hillside, this eclectic hodgepodge group of people, and he says, you are the light of the world, a town built on a hill. And for the Jews in the crowd, they all knew what that meant because Israel had been called by God to be a light. Isaiah 42, 6 through 7, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in, in darkness. Isaiah 49, 6, he says, is it too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so the Jews in the crowd knew exactly what Jesus was saying. 
that Israel had not been doing that. In fact, they were doing the opposite. The Gentile wasn't welcome. And those people in the crowd that were non-Jews were sitting there. And Jesus looks out over the crowd and says, you are the light. You're the light of the world. The reality of it is, is that the Jewish people, many of them had lived very introvertedly spiritually. They rejected anyone who was not of their faith. And they had become very insular and selfish. And so Jesus on a hillside calls everyone sitting there the light. You are the light of the world. But let's remember what else Jesus said about being the light of the world. John 8, 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 9, 5, while I am in the world, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that no one who believes in me shall stay in darkness. In Ephesians 5, 8, the Apostle Paul picks up on the idea, for once you were once darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. Live as children of light. You see, people don't do well in darkness at all. People do terrible in darkness. Two of my children went off to grad school and they studied in an area where there was very little sunlight for five months of the year. And I remember both of my children reaching out saying, gosh, this is getting depressed. It's depressing. And then they'd call back and say, now I think I am getting depressed. And they went out and bought what's called a sun lamp to kind of revert and divert some of that. But Jesus is talking about the essential nature of light for humankind. And he declares he's the light of the world and then looks at this crowd and goes, you are too. Well, when Jesus talks about light, he says something very culturally perceptive. He says, you are a town on a hill that cannot be hidden. This is a picture from Tel Beersheba. It's from Beersheba, Israel. And it's a picture of what's called a tell. And you will notice the ancient ruins that are there. And if you go to Israel, there's a lot of these hills and the ones that have been inhabited usually have been inhabited for four or five, 6,000 years. Because when you've got a hill like this, and it's where there's a trade route and where there's water, each civilization just comes and builds on top of the next one. Because if you are on a hill, it's a defensible place. It's a place that you can put a wall around. It's a place to have safety. It's a place that's elevated so you can see the enemy coming and if people are lost, they can see it and they know where to head to. And by the way, at night, these tells, these hills, these little uh, towns or cities on a hill back in the day, the walls were constructed in such a way and were coated in such a way where there would be a little bit of a glow to them at night. And so everyone knew that if you're traveling and you are afraid of the wild animals and the darkness is overcoming you, what you got to do is find a tell with a town on it, and you get there. When you get there, you find safety. What's interesting to note 
is that humankind does not do well in the darkness. Just simply doesn't. And yet Jesus says to this crowd, you are the light of the world, you're a town on a hill. Let your light shine. Now in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus puts it this way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You see in the Sermon on the Mount, light shining equals good deeds. In other words, we live such radically different lives than the people in culture. The people look and go, there's something different. And I know it's not you. There's something that's making you different. You see, what's interesting to note is in the Greek language, good deeds, good. The definition of this Greek word for good is especially of things so constituted as to answer the purpose for which the class of things was created. The good of its kind, like good fish opposed to those that you would throw away. There are certain species of fish that you just throw them away when you catch them in your net. And so the word for good here is a very technical word that speaks about showing the purpose for what this reality has been created for. And then works is the Greek word ergo, where we get our word energy from. It speaks of doing something out of an inner desire with an intense purpose. You see, Jesus looks at you and he looks at me and he says, here's the thing, your light will shine and it'll be through good needs. And here's why that's good news. Many people on that hillside are spiritually impoverished. They know very, very little or nothing about the Bible, but they've been observing and following this guy named Jesus. And the idea is, is that it's not about your biblical knowledge, although that's important. It's not about understanding everything with the Christian faith, although you should be growing in that. What Jesus commissions his people to do is to do acts and love and deed in such a way that people are convinced that whatever is calling us and driving us is categorically different from culture. In my family, we have one family member that doesn't need light at all, and here she is. <laughs> this is the blue tick coon hound that I reference. This was her, and I took this picture this morning as I was leaving for church. She's a blue tick coon hound. She's a unique breed of dog that literally lives by her nose. And I can remember so clearly we had first gotten her. My daughter Jackie rescued her, was so excited. And after her being part of our family for about two weeks, I said, look, we have, a, we have family friends that give us carte blanche on their farm. I said, let's take Banks and you and I, let's go out onto the farm and let's just go walk with her. Well, we're walking with this blue tick coon hound and all of a sudden she puts her nose to the ground and let out a noise I've never heard a dog make. It's called a howl. And she ran full speed into this briar patch and never slowed down. And the reason why is God had created her and humankind had kind of bred this breed of dog to where its entire life is about smelling for raccoons. And her nose hit a trail and she took off. And Jackie looked at me and said, Dad, you need to go get her. <laughs> and I said, you ever give false comfort to your children? I turned to Jackie and I said, she's going to be just fine. 
And we sat there and we listened to that howl as it got more and more distant. And there's a ridge a mile and a half past that farm and she went right over the top of it and was gone. And Jackie turned to me as every high school does with their dad and says, what are you gonna do about it? And I said, well, Jackie, I know she'll come back. Not true at all, but that's what I felt like saying. And so we devised a plan and here was our plan. Each of us would sit in the car and we kind of pulled up. I know enough about dogs that you want to go to the last spot that you've seen them and just set up camp. So we pulled the car up on the farm and we just sat there and hours went by. Now it's beginning to get dark. And what we did was every 20 minutes, one of us would hop out of the car because it was a little bit chilly and we would yell, Banks, Banks. And then we'd sit back in the car and I'd convince her again that this dog would return. Well, finally, it's dark, and it's my turn. So I open the door, and I go to step out, and I almost stepped on her. She had come back and curled up right next to the car. And I was like, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And she stood up, and she was all cut, covered in briars, covered in dirt, and her tail was going 100 miles an hour. She was so excited and so happy because she had finally been able to chase the thing that she was created to do. Her tank was totally full. But she doesn't need light. In fact, she likes darkness because she has this coonhound nose. By the way, coons, I looked it up, their ears actually gather the scent under their nose as they run, and they have a little special olfactory cavity where they can literally smell while they're exhaling. Isn't that incredible? But you know the truth of it is, you and I don't function at all in darkness. In fact, it horrifies us. Darkness is the thing that we have to avoid because we're not created for darkness, we're created for light. It's what we're created for. And what the scripture says is Jesus steps in, he says, I'm the light of the world. Those of you who are living in darkness, and you know it, you know that you're created for something other than just yourself. You know that somewhere, somehow in you, is a drawing towards who Jesus is. That's what the light is all about. You can't live without it. And so Jesus turns to this eclectic thousands of people on a hill and says, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. And I bet you some of them looked at each other and went, really, you, me, what are you kidding? Because it's about the good deeds. It's about living a life that is categorically different than the kingdoms of this world. And somehow, some way, when we live like that and we live out of love and generosity and forgiveness and mercy, even though we don't want to, somehow light comes into the darkness and your life and mine becomes like a city on a hill for pilgrims who are brutally lost and brutally disoriented in life. We become a city on the hill they know and they sense if I can get there, there's safety. And there's what I'm looking for, it's there. I've really struggled to define as best as I can what Jesus is talking about. Let your light shine. Let your good deeds be shown before men. And so instead of kind of coming up with my own, 
I want to read for you a letter that was written in AD 130. Some believe that Justin Martyr wrote this letter. We don't really know. But the original copy of this letter was found. It was destroyed in a fire in the late 1500s. But the letter was copied. And I think that this letter to Diognetius is the best description of the life that Jesus calls us to that I've ever heard. I just want you to listen to it. Here's what the letter to Diognetius says. There's five chapter, there's 10 chapters in it. I'm gonna read chapters five and six in this letter. Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some of the other people, they, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. And yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, yet they live on a level that is transcendent to the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they are not understood, they are put to death, but raised to life again. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but, uh, but, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They are defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to every abuse. Deference is their response to insult. For the good they do, they receive punishment of malefactors, but even then they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. They are attacked by some of the Jews as aliens. They are persecuted by some of the Greeks, yet no one can explain the reason for this hatred. To speak in general terms, we may say that Christian is to the world what the soul is to the body. As the soul is present in every part of the body while remaining distinct from it, so Christians are found in all the cities of the world but cannot be identified with this world. As the visible body contains the invisible soul, so Christians are seen living in the world, but their religious life remains unseen. The body hates the soul and wars against it, not because of any injury the soul has done, but because of the restriction the, the soul places on its pleasures. Similarly, the world hates Christians, not because of what, that they've done anything wrong, but it's because they are opposed to its enjoyments. Christians love those who hate them, just as the soul loves the body and all its members despite the body's hatred. 
It is by the soul enclosed within the body that the body is held together. And similarly, it is by Christians detained in the world as in a prison that the world is held together. The soul, though immortal, has a mortal dwelling place. And Christians can also live for a time amidst perishable things while awaiting the freedom from change and decay that will be theirs in heaven. As the soul benefits from the deprivation of food and drink, so Christians flourish under persecution. Such is the Christian lofty and divinely appointed function for which he is not permitted to excuse himself. A letter written in AD 130. Would you stand with me? As we stand together, I'd like for us to take just a moment and let's open our hearts to Jesus. The text says that you and I, every woman and man here is the light of the world and we shine through the good deeds that God has called us to do. God help us.